This morning, we talk about the first steps Oahu was taking to find a way to manage tourism. The neighbor island counties have come up with some ideas to jumpstart the process. As our visitor numbers are expected to rise, some say a plan can't come soon enough. HPR's Casey Harlow joins us in studio this morning. Hi, Casey. Good morning, Catherine. So I understand that uh, they did get some public it f- input from Oahu residents just at the beginning of this month. Where are we at on that? Uh, yes, yeah, so the public deadline uh, or the public feedback deadline uh, for the Destination Management Action Plan, this is a thing that the HTA is doing to better manage tourism on individual counties. The public uh, feedback deadline was up on Thursday, and now they are kind of compiling all the comments and this uh, steering committee that the HTA compiled of local stakeholders, county stakeholders, is going to review that. They're going to send that off to the HTA board of directors for final approval. And then Caroline Anderson, who's uh, kind of in charge of this whole effort, uh, said maybe sometime in August we'll get a finalized version for Oahu. Okay, and then you were uh, out and about in Waikiki kind of checking the scene. <laughs> what would you see? A lot more visitors, for sure. Uh, I used to live in Waikiki, and definitely it went silent during the pandemic, which was really eerie. But uh, they, uh, there's a lot more activity. There's a lot more business, a lot more hope uh, kind of coming into the tourism market as well. Uh, we've talked to, I talked to Rick Eggett, who's with the Waikiki Improvement Association. Uh, they do a lot of efforts in Waikiki with the community, with businesses, and with tourism. And uh, he, Rick Eggett was also part of the steering committee on uh, this DMAP or the uh, that action plan that uh, was being constructed for Oahu. And he kind of took me through the whole process of what the steering committee uh, considered, what the concerns were. And one of the concerns was in 2019, we saw more than 10 million visitors, and that brought about $18 billion within the state. But there was a lot of stress on uh, the natural uh, resources that we've had here on Oahu and throughout the state as well. And so there's an emphasis on sustainability uh, for sure and better managing tourism. And he kind of uh, took us, th- took me through what they call uh, ecotourism, something that's a little bit more sustainable with a little bit more consci- conscientious to uh, natural resources and sustainability. Throughout the world, many destinations have sort of started to emphasize what they call ecotourism and cultural tourism. And just from the standpoint of the availability of information on the internet, people know about all these different places that they can go. And part of our problem is that we're not some small destination that's trying to get people to come for cultural and ecology reasons. We have a very major destination with millions of people. And so our problem instead is to protect and control access, I think, to those very fragile cultural and environmental sites. And this kind of brings about the whole uh, bringing the right type of visitor, uh, someone who's respectful and responsible while they stay here. And this uh, buzzword that the HTA is using is called regenerative tourism. And Caroline Anderson kind of uh, explains what that means. Regenerative tourism is all about making sure that the destination is being taken care of for current and future generations. And so some of the activities that could be thought of as regenerative tourism is for example, volunteerism. It could be helping with fish pond restoration or a beach cleanup, but you know something that makes the place better than they left it. And that was Caroline Anderson, a director of community enrichment with the HTA. And there's a bunch of efforts that the HTA is going through right now uh, with educational videos and efforts, uh, what they call Kuleana uh, videos, uh, talking about ocean safety or hiking safety or, you know, be careful if you go hiking here. You know, there are uh, certain uh, plant species or animal species that you need to be wary of uh, just not to, like, you know, st- uh, tr- uh, kind of step on, you know. Right, right. And I, I know there was talk about the Aloha Pledge where people, uh, you know, arrived on island that they agree to be respectful, you know, f- uh, to protect the Aina for our keiki. Yeah, and that's uh, they're still doing that, I believe, as well. Uh, but another uh, thing that really kind of drove this whole action plan as well was uh, Rick Egged believed was vacation rentals. Uh, when w- we talked, he said that hotels uh, could generally 
you know, accommodate seven to eight million visitors a year throughout the state. And since we saw 10.4 million, he kind of said, you know, that extra three had to go to vacation rentals. And so he kind of said that, you know, the whole thing to address is vacation rentals at this point. Up until 2019, our occupancies were fine. When I say our, the traditional hospitality market. So it's not a matter of we want to get rid of the competition. In fact, the studies that have been shown showed over 30% of the people who go to vacation rentals wouldn't come to Hawaii if they couldn't go to a vacation rental. So to me, there's your answer. You want to reduce the number of visitors? Get rid of vacation rentals. And I think this is something we have to work on as a community. The city has to set up a system and they're in the process of doing that. So it's not trying to be critical of the Blangiardi administration. I think they, they, they want to do the right thing and they're just working on the best way to, to engineer it at this point. Yeah, I bet you some people might disagree with that point where you get rid of vacation rentals altogether because there are legitimate rentals in that resort district. Yeah, exactly. And I will be working on a story about vacation rentals uh, coming up next week. I'm going to be interviewing a couple people here on Oahu as well as on on Hawaii Island and hopefully Maui County as well. Yeah, I know the neighbor islands have certainly been uh, leading the way, leading the charge on enforcement. And uh, I know Oahu is eager to learn to see what has worked there and if we can apply it here. Uh, I know even the the uh, online booking uh, services, you know, uh, Airbnb, uh, you know, VRBO, uh, they are cooperating apparently with uh, state uh, tax folks to make sure that uh, we've got legitimate uh, vacation rentals that are operating. And there's also uh, efforts with uh, Airbnb, with the county agreements uh, for Oahu and Kauai to make sure that, you know, those rentals are in the places that they need to be if they are advertised on the Airbnb website as well. All right. Well, we'll look forward to your uh, stories. Thanks so much, Casey. Thank you so much. We've been listening HPR's Casey Harlow. To read his stories, head to hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaiian Airlines, committed to the safety of passengers and staff with reinforced cleaning procedures and pre-travel testing options. Reservations at hawaiianairlines.com. is a conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Today's quiz, we're looking at a country music megastar who has made Maui his home. That's right, Shotgun Willie. Willie Nelson first fell in love with the islands while on tour here with fellow blues singer Bonnie Raitt. In 1992, he recorded a cover of Blue Hawaii, crooning Dreams Come True in Blue Hawaii. But what about a green Hawaii? Well, Willie has thoughts on that, too. In 2004, he had the idea to start his own biofuel company after he and his wife bought a diesel car. The result was BioWilly, a biodiesel made of soybeans and vegetable oil that can be used in any diesel engine. Sustainability was Nelson's goal, so the fuel was only made with materials grown in the U.S. It was therefore somewhat hard to come by with only a few pumps that carry it. But in 2012, Pacific Biodiesel struck a deal with Nelson's company to provide BioWilly at one of their locations. For today's quiz, we want to know where'd you have to go to get a tank of Bio Willy? Night and you and blue Hawaii. 
call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Lovely you and blue Hawaii With all this loveliness There should be love Come with me Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareedhawaii.com. So many artists and musicians and nonprofits are still struggling to get back on their feet as we move into this next phase of the recovery. There are different pots of money that the federal government has set aside for that. This next round of aid includes more than $700,000 for Hawaii. The State Foundation for Culture and the Arts is charged with getting money into those needy hands. We talked to Executive Director Jonathan Johnson about the deadlines that are coming up for our creative community. We're going to be distributing that to both organizations and individuals, so a little different. So the intent to apply will be June 1st through July 18th for organizations. They have to fill out this intent to apply. And the applications will be only open from July 1st to July 31st. Right now we have it for grants are up to $15,000 for salaried staff positions, fees for artists and contractual people, facilities expenses, um, costs associated with health and safety. But I think there's a new one this time, select marketing and promotional costs. How many organizations do you think are eligible for some of these? Oh, more than we can fund. We'll be able to fund at $15,000, like 50 orgs. We typically get about 90 that are interested and then this year we're dividing it up. We'll fund 144,000 to individual artists who would do community project grants where they have to do a project or performance or exhibit that benefit the public. So the, the federal government has different rules about funding individuals, but this is the first time we're gonna do that with federal money. So it should be exciting. I think there's a lot of creative people in the community who can come back and do projects that support their communities with this funding. So the deadline to apply is in July. Yeah. How soon after that uh, do you think you could be cutting checks? Well, we have a year to fund. So probably by second quarter, so October, we'll probably get money out. The challenge is that our biennium grants funding will be going out at the same time. And by state statute, they can't actually be getting both funding streams at the same time. If they're getting a biennium grant, they have to complete their final reporting and then be awarded the next award. So we're going to be juggling who gets their money first and second. Refresh my memory. Is this like the second pot of money that you folks are getting? Correct. We did receive 425000 in CARES funding. This 750 is the ARP money, so American Rescue Plan. And this is the first batch from the National Endowment for the Arts. It's different than the funding stream the state of Hawaii received. So this is not part of that. This is a separate line. And then people can also apply to a separate stream from the Humanities Council and then directly to the National Endowment for the Arts. So the NEA will also be having a a grant cycle with 60% of the money they received. So they divide, give out 40 to the states, and then they give out 60% on their own too. There's a bunch of different angles people can apply for. And we're not saying if you apply for one, you can't have the other. You can actually apply for all, and that's fine with us. And when you say artists, who are we talking about? 
Oh, this is cultural practitioners. This is basically not-for-profit organizations, musicians, all kinds of different. It's pretty broad. Well, I know that with the latest round in federal funding, I believe that there were a number of museums that were not eligible to apply for that money because like, they didn't have fixed seating, you know, whether they're the Mission House Museum or the Palace on the Big Island. Or even Iolani Palace wasn't eligible. That was like a shuttered venues grant, right? So performing institutions that had loss of revenue due to people in seats. And so, yeah, that was a tough rule. I know Senator Schatz was trying to figure out a way around it, but in the end, they couldn't. But, of course, Iolani Palace is receiving ARP money through the legislature this year and Bishop Museum also. Um, Will they be eligible to apply for these uh, grants as well? Sure. Okay, so it could be extra revenue. Oh, yeah. Museums, cultural organizations, yeah, they're all eligible for this. Okay, talking hula halal? Absolutely, yeah. Prince Lot Hula Festival or Kiki Hula, everybody, yeah. It's going to be, what, first come, first serve? Or how does that work? How, how how do you then decide which of these worthy organizations get the money and who doesn't? Like all of the grants that State Foundation gives out, it's all community-based decision-making. So we have pools of reviewers, and there's criteria that the applications are vetted against and then ranked. And then we fund as much as we can down the list. Um, if people want to get involved, they can apply to be on the panel pool and review. Often we have the grantees themselves participate in reviewing each other's grants, which helps everybody learn and increases our uh, expertise. So there'll be criteria, and we'll put that out in our FAQs. So if folks are interested, they just, one, need to declare their intent to apply, and then you've got the deadline in July, and then they will probably hear in October. And they can go to our website www.sfca.hawaii.gov or call us at 586-0309. The creative community is one of the hardest hit economically and Hawaii is probably one of the worst in the nation. So it's a drop in the bucket, but at least it's it's something. You know, it's really a, one of many different ways to make a step in the recovery of the creative sector in Hawaii. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to a number of uh, -of out-of-work musicians, and they're just itching to get back into the clubs, into the hotels. Well, go down to Waikiki. It's busy. How is the State Foundation doing with, you know, its planned exhibits and its shows? Oh, today we opened a new exhibit, Young Artists of Hawaii. You need to come down. It's K through 6 statewide public-private charter, the best 96 works. Statewide that just opened in the Hawaii State Art Museum. We're open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 4. Super exciting. There's a pop up by uh, UH in our sculpture second floor lobby. It has a bunch of koi fish flying around. Yeah, there's lots <laughs> going on over here. That was Jonathan Johnson, State Foundation's Executive Director, talking about the latest exhibit at the Hawaii State Museum downtown and about the grant process for nonprofits, musicians, dancers, and artists. Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about the use of body cameras by the Honolulu Police Department for our reality check today. A politics and opinion editor, Chad Blair, joins us today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So the story is by Christina Jedra. Yeah, I was happy to sub for her today. You know, everybody is talking about body cameras with police officers nationally. Of course, right here on Oahu, we've had two publicized shootings heavily publicized shootings in recent days, the one in New Uanu, the one on Kalakaua Avenue. The concern in Christina's story is that HPD in particular, the Honolulu Police Department, is not always turning those cameras on, even as we're paying more and more attention to what these cameras tell us or don't tell us. So the question is, how do you hold 
a police officer accountable when they fail to record what actually happened. And this has got a couple of people, a number of people in the law enforcement community concerned, as well as members of the Honolulu Police Commission. Yes, and one of them is Doug Chin, the former uh, <laughs> state attorney general. Attorney, yeah, attorney general, also lieutenant governor. Uh, Doug Chin is saying, you know, look, it's it's very possible that the police will intentionally turn off those cameras. Not everybody, but some, depending on the certain the situation that's at hand. So, how do you actually know whether that narrative that comes out from HPD? Because remember, they, whenever something happens, HPD always has a press conference. And they get the story out first and what they say happened. But what if, in fact, that video, which in many cases the public will not see right away, what if it actually contradicts what HBD or the officer is telling us when the uh, when a, someone is captured, a suspect, or whether uh, excessive force was used, right? Maybe a camera was turned off and something happened between a suspect and a police officer. Uh, in fact, this footage can, in cases, contradict what actually happened. And these cameras haven't been in use for very long. Um, what bothers me is just the, the, you know, the the rate of release, and it's different for for different cases. It's kind of head scratching. Right uh, here on Oahu, HPD about eighteen hundred cameras uh, now in place since twenty seventeen. You're right; it hasn't been all that terribly long, and also on the other uh, counties as well. Just in two thousand alone, sixty percent uh, of those of some cases were violated by officers. Uh, they did not uh, fully turn on their cameras they were supposed to. So what happens to them when they don't follow the regulation? Well, HPD doesn't consider it to be a very big deal. It's a fairly minor. It's a light penalty. Uh, what will happen is they'll be disciplined with counseling. Maybe they'll get a written reprimand. There have been no suspensions, uh, even in these cases where officers essentially violated HPD policy. And Christina reached out to the former uh, Kauai police chief, Daryl Perry, about his take on what's happening. Yep, concerned as well that it's being abused. And, of course, Kauai has actually had a pretty better record when it comes to the use of, of police cameras. Of course, it's a much smaller county than is the city and county of Honolulu. But he, too, has raised concerns. You know, right now there's a, an incident happening nationally. It's actually been a couple of years now, but the Associated Press has been reporting on an incident in Louisiana. State troopers, uh, they uh, captured a black man. His name is Ronald Green. They jolted him with tasers. They punched him. They dragged him on the ground. Well, what was the first storyline, the narrative from the state troopers? Oh, he died in a car crash. And then they said, oh, wait a minute, he died after a struggle. Well, it turns out the video, the body cameras, which came out two years later, suggest a far different story happened. And here uh, on Oahu with the I Remember Sky, Sky App case, remember that footage has not officially been released because HPD is saying, oh, look, you know, it involves a minor and therefore we have to be protective of these cases. But, you know, remember as well that that vehicle that he was riding was shot at least a dozen times. Uh, there is, in fact, a wrongful death lawsuit filed in that case. Yeah, and, you know, I know uh, even the attorneys for the um, uh, one shooting case in Uwano there uh, the gentleman from uh, South Africa, you know, there's concern Correct. about, you know, the release of that video. And, and I know on the mainland, uh, I think there was a family that sued in one of these, uh, you know, uh, wrongful death cases. And uh, I think the judge said, OK, we'll let the family look at the video, but it's not going to be pre uh, released publicly. So it just it varies. It's frustrating. Yeah, even with even with that Lindani Miami case uh, in New Juan. And remember, that footage was released, but there's parts of it that we're not quite sure of. There was some uh, incidents that were not recorded, some interaction between one officer and the person that died. Uh, Matthew Broderick, a former judge who's also in the police commission, says, you know, in many ways, when that footage does come out, he says it's often determinative. It really helps us understand what happened. And that's why it's so essential that the public be allowed. Uh, remember, these are taxpayer-supported officers paid for, uh, as well as those body cameras to capture what's going on. Yeah, well, we'll see if, uh, if there's a change uh, and you know, in the speed at which uh, you know, these officers are, are disciplined if they don't turn those cameras on. But thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Chat. You can read Christina Jedwa's story at civilbeat.org.
Coming Saturday, May 29th, it's a live stream Atherton Studio performance with slack key guitarist Jeff Peterson. The Grammy and Nahoku Hanohano Award winner will perform songs from his recent release, Mele Nahe Nahe, plus music from his travels. This members only show is online, so join us from anywhere. Sign up at hprtickets.org. Support for HPR comes from ProService Hawaii, whose team is committed to helping businesses overcome the challenges of HR today. ProService.com slash HR experts or by calling familiar with May Day, but what about National Gray May Day? Well, it falls on May 27th, and gray is a nod to the gray matter in our heads, our brains. It's about brain tumor awareness. Symptoms often vary, and too often you don't hear about brain cancer until it is too late. We talked to Joe Ramos, Deputy Director of the University of Hawaii Cancer Center, whose life work centers around the brain. On the good side, brain cancers are fairly rare. Uh, we have about uh, 67 to 70 per year. Uh, of brain cancers and central nervous system tumors uh, here in Hawaii. But the bad news is about half of those are very aggressive forms of malignant brain cancers. These are, are termed glioblastomas or stage four gliomas. And these um, unfortunately get diagnosed very, very late. And so that means that we aren't able to catch them until they've already spread significantly throughout the brain. And secondly, they aggressively invade other areas of the brain. So when they are diagnosed and they've spread to these other locations, it makes it much more difficult to simply cut the tumor out as a cure. And so that means that these tumors have a very poor survival. Uh, unfortunately, when you're diagnosed with a, a stage 4 glioma, glioblastoma, you have about, usually it's about a 15-month or so prognosis. It really is person-specific, but on average. The treatments for these are still not very well developed. This is a cancer where we need new treatments desperately. This is why I've committed my research life to trying to find new therapies. This cancer is one of the nastiest ones that we have still and that we don't have good therapies for. So essentially you have resection, you cut out the tumor. That's the first order. Secondly, then you can have radiotherapies and then chemotherapies as uh, subsequent types of treatments. And so with all of those kinds of therapies, you have the 15-month prognosis approximately. Yeah, and I've known a couple of people that have had you know, brain cancer, brain tumors, and uh, unfortunately they were very fast-moving. Do you have any personal connection with anyone who's had brain cancer? Yes, in, in my family we've had uh, some pediatric brain tumors. These were fortunately caught as small tumors that were you know, easily removed, and so, uh, so they've done fine since then. But that's the only personal experience I've had with this. And so as far as then uh, cancers in young people, pediatric tumors, I mean, how, how common is that? Again, not very common. It's very, very rare here. And again, it varies significantly as to where those tumors arise from in children as well as, you know, the specific presentation when they go in to see the doctors as to what their prognosis will be. But, uh, but yeah, many of those are more on the benign side of things and can be treated more readily than these more aggressive glioblastomas that we work on. And we often hear about diet and cancer or uh, habits like, you know, smoking and lung cancer. But with brain tumors, what? Anything you can point to? Brain tumors, it's really not clear what might be some environmental things. The two things that are, have been clearly identified, one, exposure to radiation. And so, so that is clearly one of the most well-known things that can cause brain tumors. And then there are very, very rare ones that may arise from genetic diseases, so, so uh, very rare mutations. So there are some family links for certain types of brain cancers, but again, these are very, very rare. And then when you talk about radiation, what are you talking about, uh, like x-rays? Um, well, or? some, you know, there's, if you're exposed, perhaps you're in, in the military and you're exposed to a radiation source, or um, actually there are other types of radiation that might also cause it if you get exposed to radiation. And, for example, in sort of clinical treatment or something, that might also eventually lead to secondary problems with brain tumors. What about as far as, like, the ethnic breakdown? In the islands here, it's predominantly 
The highest incidence is amongst white patients. This is followed reasonably closely in Native Hawaiians, and then our Asian populations have the lowest risk. And is it more male than female? It's a little more male than female, but not hugely different. So as far as prevention? We don't really know enough other than avoiding radiation sources. And again, most of the ones that I know that have been documented are probably more military side. But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's really not one that we have a lot of information on what other kinds of causes environmentally there are to avoid. This is what I work on personally here, so I've been uh, really committed to trying to find uh, new ways to attack glioblastomas, the, the really aggressive kind of brain tumor that I told you about. So we, we've really done a lot of real discovery research to try and figure out a little bit more about how these cancers work, how they spread, and how they survive in, in the brain. And so we've identified a few new processes, and so what we've done with that information is once we have a, a, a new insight into what drives these cancers, we're trying to find ways to target that now. And so we've been working to develop our own agents to really attack that, that, new, um, that new mechanism that we've discovered. And we've also found a company that's working on a compound, a drug lead, that hits that same target. And so we're working with them as well to see if we can see a way of moving this into the clinic. But this is another one of those challenges. Uh, once you have something that will really is a, a potentially a really good drug therapeutic for something in brain cancer, there's a barrier in the brain called the blood-brain barrier that makes it really hard to get certain types of things into the brain. Uh, usually this is what you need to keep your brain safe, but with new drugs for, uh, for brain tumors, it's one of those barriers we have to get over to make sure that we can get the drug to where it needs to go. So that's another thing that we'll have to, to work on with our new therapeutics that we're trying to develop. And then just generally for this type of cancer, are there particular symptoms? It really does matter where the tumor forms and what kind of tumor it is. And dependent on that, you can have rather general symptoms. So headaches are one of those that you probably might expect. Uh, so if you start to have regular headaches that you've never had before, changing patterns with your headache, that would be a cause for concern that you would want to see your doctor about. Nausea, vomiting. Of course, if it's, if it's a location that can affect your vision, you would have vision problems that you would develop maybe blurred vision, for example. If it's in an area that affects hearing in the brain, then you might have some hearing changes. Some people have speech difficulties that come out. Occasionally, you have a personality or behavioral changes even. Wow. So, so really... lots of different things, basically, depending on where it is in the brain and what region it's affecting, you get different kinds of symptoms. And, and no symptoms at all for a, for a long time, unfortunately, for some. That's another area that we really need to work on more is to get some diagnostics running that we can find these things early. And so uh, our listeners will be able to learn more because you folks are going to be offering a free webinar on this? Yeah, the Cancer Center is celebrating 50 years of being a cancer center here in Hawaii, doing research for the people of Hawaii. And so as part of that, we're running these Starlight Lecture Series, which are free Zoom webinars that we've been running in the evenings. And so we have one coming up that's really, I, I get to host, I get the fun of hosting a neurosurgeon, Dr. Thomas No and a uh, radiation oncologist, Dr. Christina Spears, will be speaking at this. Uh, and it's Thursday, May the 27th at 5 p.m. And you can go on to the Cancer Center website, uhcancercenter.org, all lowercase, and, and find out more about it. What about, like, other countries? Is there a lot of collaboration? My own group collaborates with, uh, with other labs around the world mm -hmm. uh, on these issues. So I do a lot with the Mayo Clinic, which has a strong brain tumor component as well in uh -huh. the United States. Okay. But I also have collaborators in Japan and collaborators in, in the U.K., United Kingdom, as well as in Italy. So different, depending on the area of specialty and how much they overlap, we do mm -hmm. an enormous amount of collaboration. That's one of the great strengths of, of doing cancer research in a cancer center like what we have here in Hawaii. That was Joe Ramos, Deputy Director and Biological Researcher at the University of Hawaii Cancer Center. For links to the upcoming Starlight Series on Thursday, you can also check out our website later today. This is a conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. What does NASA have in store for the Ingenuity drone on Mars? Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to give us the update. Here's your Monday Stargazer. <laughs> 
Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet. And as always, we're really thrilled to get the uh, expertise and guidance of astronomer Christopher Phillips. And wouldn't you know it, we got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do we have in store this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be here. So this week, stargazers look out for Mars and Venus in the west after sunset. The moon will be passing through its full phase this week, and so spotting those faint objects in the sky is going to be very challenging. And this week we've got an episode that deals with that really cool helicopter drone we sent up to Mars, yeah? Yeah, NASA's Mars Helicopter Ingenuity will take to the skies again this week on its sixth flight. This phase of test flight is to demonstrate the usefulness of helicopter drones to perform planet-side reconnaissance for further rovers and human explorers. During this test flight, the drone will be expected to perform for an extended period of time in order to gather the necessary data for engineers at Mission Control. Wow, this sounds exciting. So what kind of flight plan is involved with this extended operation? Well, Ingenuity is expected to first ascend to a height of 33 feet, which is around about 10 meters, and then head off 150 meters into the Martian landscape. Once there, the drone will begin acquiring color imagery of Martian terrain and any specific points of interest. And talk about the camera that's on that thing. Well, the camera is pretty cool. Ingenuity is equipped with a high-resolution stereo cameras. That means it will be able to take 3D images from its aerial perspective. 3D images of Martian terrain, specifically sand dunes and rock formations. Now, rocks may not sound very interesting, but this kind of demonstration is essential for future missions, as it will show researchers just how capable an aerial platform can be for doing interplanetary science. And after that imaging mission, what's next? Well, it won't stop. It will head off again into the Martian landscape to another landing site called Field C. This will be a makeshift Martian airstrip, if you will, where Ingenuity will prepare for the next phase of its mission. Unfortunately, though, this time around, we won't get to see this flight from the rover, Perseverance, perspective, since it will be concentrating on doing its own science. And the uh, number of flights this thing had planned were only about six, right? So is this a chance that sort of the machine will continue to function long after that? So engineers here on Earth are definitely hoping that Ingenuity will continue to be able to function for as long as it possibly can, which means hopefully we'll get several more flights out of this little helicopter. Well, we'll expect more updates from you on this. Very exciting stuff. Christopher Phillips, another fun Stargazer report. Thank you. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next week, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the Culinary Institute of the Pacific, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. Are you planning a road trip? Well, earlier in the show, we asked you to tell us the one spot where you could fuel up with a tank of premium BioWilly, also known as Willie Nelson's branded biodiesel. BioWilly was born after Nelson's wife, Annie D'Angelo, tried to fill up the tank of her Volkswagen on Maui. In keeping with the couple's green values, Nelson conceived of a biofuel that could power any diesel vehicle and was made from materials grown in the U.S. Unfortunately, the high cost of production made BioWilly a bit of a shaky business model, but after a few groovy years between 2012 and tw- uh, 2014, eco-conscious drivers in Kahului, Maui could fill up their tanks with BioWilly through a dedicated pump provided by Pacific Biodiesel. Congratulations to our quiz winner, Simon from Hanalei. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. road again Just can't wait to get on the road again Life I love is making music with my friends And I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again May happens to be Mental Health Awareness Month and one of the big lessons we've learned over the last 14 months is the importance of taking care of our mental health especially when it comes to our keiki But what can parents do to protect their children's mental health or address their mental health challenges? Well, that's what the conversations Russell Subiano set out to find when he spoke with Scott Shimabukuro, the administrator of the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Division for the State Department of Health. 
in the past, much of the focus on mental health issues have been on adults, but things are changing. I think as a community, as a society, we're learning more and more about the importance of children's mental health. What have we been overlooking when it comes to the mental health of our children and youth? One of the things, and it, it absolutely does apply actually to the pandemic, but it applies anyway, is the connection between adult mental health and children's mental health. So we know that with parental stress comes greater amounts of child maltreatment. And it's this early maltreatment that is harmful to children and their overall well-being. So we need our communities to take care of themselves in order for our developing children to have kind of a healthy emotional and psychological life. It makes a lot of sense. I'm a parent and I can see that when things are happy for me, the kids are usually happy when things are kind of rough, then the, the kids seem to be affected as well. Is this something that we're learning more about recently or is this something that we've kind of always known? This is something that we have known for a long time, but I think, I think we have sort of this mentality that when somebody has a struggle, that we treat them just like an island to themselves. And we, we often forget that they are growing up in a context, a familial context, a school context, a community context. And so we have to remember that whatever supports we provide need to include that greater context, not just looking at this one single individual. When you say we tend to treat them like an island, are you saying that we tend to leave it up to them to figure their way through any issues they're dealing with, or are we treating it like an isolated incident? So even even now, like in the work we do, we have the way we deliver treatment tends to be very individualized, right? It's mm-hmm. It's just treating this one person for the problems that they are having instead of... And, And by the way, we do consider the greater context, but I think as a society, we mostly look at individual people instead of all the interpersonal relationships they have, which are essential to uh, a healthy, to healthy well-being. And I think that's something that the general public can sometimes overlook, that we need to support our families. It's the whole family that we need to be supporting and looking out for. Okay, I think I understand now. Sometimes it's, like you said, out of context. You're not really looking at what's going on in the family or what's going on at school or or what Correct. medical what like physical medical issues they may be undergoing or what maybe trauma right. they've they've experienced in the past much of health and medicine is about prevention what are some of the most important things a parent needs to know about their children's mental health to protect their mental health social competencies is really is, is a predictor of well-being which means that kids that are good communicators they can express themselves, they can reach out to people, both peers and grown-ups are going to be better adjusted. And when families have these qualities, then the family is going to work better as a familial unit. I think watching for that kind of thing. And then, and then when you're looking for, if you're looking, if you're wondering about if your child is having a mental health challenge, one of the things you look for are changes in the way that they usually are, right? So is there a change in energy level, a change in their sleep, a change in their appetite, a change in their ability to focus, a change in the amount of social interaction they pursue? You're looking for that kind of a thing. It sounds like a lot of preventative measures start with the parents, start with the parents being aware of themselves and how they interact with their child, as well as being aware of their child and being aware of the things of who they are, how they react to things, what their personality is. Right. I think um, parent awareness is really important. And also what we've seen in the past year since school shut down is our referrals to our division have dropped by 33% because the schools are often the eyes that notice something Mm -hmm. different about a student and then we'll get a referral. So I think you're right, it is parents, but I think it's all of us. We all need to be vigilant about the children in our communities. You know, speaking of of the pandemic, COVID has had a huge impact on all of us in many ways, especially mentally. Right. What are some of the ways that our children were affected? If you look at national data, because we don't have a whole lot of local data, but what I just 
told you about the decrease in referrals to us, mm-hmm. that is one of the negative outcomes is that there are less eyes on the kids, which means less kids are being identified who are in need and therefore less kids are being referred. But in the national data, what we're seeing is an increase in anxiety and depression, irritability. We're anticipating that because of parental stress that there'll be uh, greater levels of abuse and neglect of children. And also because of the economic crisis, that factors in there too with greater maltreatment of children. There's also the likelihood that there's an increase in intimate partner violence because of a similar family stress, which impacts the children as well. And what we are hearing from the emergency department, I don't have hard numbers for it, but the emergency departments have been calling saying they're seeing more kids go to the emergency departments for psychiatric and substance reasons, substance use reasons. So I think we're already seeing some of that. Why do you suppose they're going to an emergency department? Some of them are suicidal. Some people are maybe overdosing, things like that. There's obviously a lot of opportunity for people to have some issues or to run into some mental health challenges. How do they get help? What's available in Hawaii to help educate parents about children's mental health or get help for their children if they are suffering? In terms of the Department of Health, Child and Adolescent Mental Health Division, we have admission criteria that is pretty, we accept youth that have some of the greatest needs in Hawaii. Below us, hopefully, kids are getting support through the schools. So the Department of Education has school-based behavioral health. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there are always community providers, a lot of psychologists and master's level therapists out there that treat children. We also have a website called helpyourkeiki.com. It doesn't have specific provider You could go to your health plan if you wanted to identify specific providers, but helpyourkiki.com has a lot of information about mental health. It is written to target parents. It's not for, it's, it's made for parents. And it has information in there, like if you're looking for a therapist, what kinds of questions to ask them to make sure it's the right match, what treatment should look like, and things like that. What do you think about regular therapy, regular visits to a psychologist? Is that something that's just starting to become the norm, or is that something that parents should be more open to and more willing to utilize for their children? I think that's a great thing. I I think there should be a goal. I don't think people should just go because that's sort of like in the olden days Mm -hmm. where people would just have their weekly therapy session. I think therapy should have a specific goal and it'd be time limited to achieving that end. But I think um, people should absolutely use it when it's needed. Back when I was growing up, I don't know if it was like philosophy or just the way it was. It's just you just kind of suck it up and you push through it, especially if you were a guy. Right. And it just it seems like as a society, as a community, we're starting to realize that that it's not just that easy. Are we seeing a move toward better communication and better community when it comes to dealing with our mental challenges? I don't know if we're getting better at it, but I do know we understand it more. What I mean is the early resiliency research, you know, you hear that word all the time, right? Resilience. The early research looked a lot at what is it about a person that makes them resilient. The research now is looking at who is in their life that is creating a resilient response to adversity? Because it, what we're finding out more and more is that people who can bounce back in the face of adversity do so because they have a family, they have a school that is supporting them, they have a community, they have a variety of people who are helping them to respond in that resilient manner. So it's gone from what's inside the person to what's around the person. That's pretty game-changing, I think. Yeah, so kind of the analogy I use is when a town gets hit by a hurricane Mm -hmm. and FEMA, if FEMA rushes in and that town is able to turn it around and bounce back, there very well may be some qualities about that town. I don't want to say there's nothing about inside of people that makes them resilient, but it's the response to that adversity that creates that resilient response. I appreciate your time, Scott. As a parent, I know that mental health awareness is very important. We all have people in our lives who have children that are struggling. And so it's just 
it was important to be able to talk to someone about why they could be struggling and, and what's out there to help them. I think parents talking to their kids has been proven to help reduce the anxiety and depression at this time, right, you know, during the pandemic. And by talking, I mean mostly really listening, asking your child, you know, what do you think is happening in the world? What does it look like to you? And, and really mostly doing the listening side of the conversation, less of the instructing or lecturing. And that's been kind of a proven way of helping our kids. That was Scott Shimabukuro, the Hawaii Department of Health's Administrator of the Child and Adolescent Division, talking with R. Russell Subiano. For a link to more information on local resources to help with your Keiki's mental health, go to the conversation page on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Tomorrow we'll hear more about navigating services to help our keiki, and we'll continue to talk about tourism. Do you have a story idea to share with us? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.